Good morning. Several years ago, there was a Christian recording artist, songwriter, by the name of Andre Crouch, and uh, had some great music. But he wrote a song that kind of went like this. Uh, I'll read you the words. I won't sing it because you'll leave. When troubles get in my way, and I can't tell my night from day, when I'm tossed from side to side like a ship on a raging tide, I don't worry, I don't fret. My God has never failed me yet. Troubles come from time to time, but that's all right. I'm not the worrying kind. Because I've got confidence my God's going to see me through. No matter what the case may be, I know he's going to fix it for me. We could only wish that that were true all the time, wouldn't we? Uh, in a church this size, uh, you would expect that there's going to be a few people who have problems, physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever, financial, marital. In fact, if you look at our board by the office, when I come into church here on, through the week, a couple times through the week, and I look at that white board by my office, and it's usually loaded with names of people that have needs. And, and uh, it just makes you wonder. I says, you, you're thinking, boy, you know, God, you, if you just take care of all these things, these people would be great. But, you know, I, I notice that uh, some people's names are up there a lot. Is God not fixing it for them? What do we do when we go through life and it is misery and heartache, trouble, emotional letdown, uh, financial difficulties, marital strife, and, and just on and on, physical problems, on and on and on. You say, Lord, when is this going to stop why, why are you allowing this to happen to such a wonderful person like me? So Paul, realizing that I would be preaching this message on April the 3rd of the year 2022, Paul decided, knowing that I would preach this message, decided to write this little letter to Yuns, uh, just so that uh, you could be encouraged. Because he knew that I'll be preaching this sermon. If you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to look at verses 28 through 39. <clears throat> One long section. Romans 8, 28. Let me read for you. Please follow along as I read. And we know, listen, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. 
What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, let me remind you here. You see this verse right here? I'm not going to talk about this in my message. I'm just, this is just, I'm, I'm adding this in there just so you can get your money's worth today. When it says, he delivered him over for us all, that all, folks, he's writing, he's not writing to a bunch of Philistines. He's writing to the church. He's, he's written his letter to the church at Rome. Okay? He's not writing to a bunch of unregenerate people, uncircumcised of heart. He's writing to the church. He says, he delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? He's not talking about God giving all things to all people, but all things to what? All things to the church. He's writing to the church. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who was the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us, that's the church, from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, or your translation may have, I am persuaded, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That ought to make you feel good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, it digs deep into our being. Divides bone and marrow. Lord, speak to us. Comfort us. Grant us peace in this word. In Jesus' name, amen. I went, hunted up my wife's recipe book. It was hidden deep in the recesses of the storage unit somewhere. I dug it up. And I, and I wrote these down because I figured this is biblical. So pay attention. Shortening, sifted flour, sugar, salt, soda, baking powder, milk, eggs, Melted, melted chocolate. You sift, you mix, you beat, beat some more, and bake until it's done. <coughs> if you do that, you should produce a chocolate cake, which I can't eat, but you can produce a chocolate cake. Jesus tells Peter, just prior to his betrayal and crucifixion. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. 
Would you like to hear good news like that from God? That Satan's going to sift you like wheat. If you have a flour sifter at home, you know what I'm talking about. I don't know if they have, my mom you see it all the time, but you put baking a potter or flour or whatever it is, all-purpose flour into a metal container and remember that. And <coughs> do they still do that? I don't, people don't bake stuff like that anymore. But my mom used to do it all the time. Flowers flying everywhere. But it, it does something to that. It, it, it causes that flower to somehow molecularly do something. I don't know. I'm not a baker. But imagine if that were your life. And you're put into this, this uh, capsule called life. And the devil just grinds away your life like this. And you're just beaten and beaten and beaten and beaten and sifted and mixed and stirred. We live in an age of convenience and comfort. We don't want to be sifted, nor beaten, nor baked. In fact, when tough times come along, we run to Romans 8.28, because I hear it all the time. We run to Romans 8.28 and claim everything as good. I began reading the ingredients of a chocolate cake. As you probably noticed, there are some good things in there. But the baking, the beating, and the sifting are not friendly to us. And notice something else here. There is, uh, by the way, that, that recipe is for a devil's food cake. And in real everyday life, the devil, according to Jesus, wants to harm us. Now, how do we know that? Because Jesus in, in, in John 10, 10 says, he says, listen, he says, he says, I have come to give you abundant life. The devil is coming to, to steal, to kill, and to destroy you. Now, here's this road that goes to Jesus' abundant living. Here's the road that goes to the devil that wants to steal, kill, and destroy he says, so which way are you going to go here? Right? You think, I become a Christian so that if I become a Christian, I am going to have this victorious, triumphant, abundant, pain-free, all-good life. Which one of you, as a Christian, has had a life that is so wonderful that no bad things ever happened to you? If that were the case, I would have not gone through this past week. Let me tell you, as I was preparing this message, and this is the truth, and my wife can attest to it because she was getting mad at me for not drinking enough water. As I was preparing, working, reading, and studying for this message, I, I, I said, let's go for a walk. Let's go. What a nice guy. Go for a walk. As we're walking along, this pain hits me right here. In fact, I'm starting to feel outrageous thinking about it. But this pain hits me right here. I'm going, oh, man, I, 
starting limping along. So he said, well, let's take the shortcut home. So he takes the shortcut home. I'm getting, this is last Tuesday, I'm getting ready to come to church. I'm driving to church, and it's pain, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, it's about a 30 already. And I'm driving to church, I, was, I can't go anymore. I've got about two miles down the road, I said, I can't go anymore, man. It is painful. I'm, you know, I, says, I was saying, is this pregnancy? I didn't know it hit you back here. But it was miserable. So I pull off and I go back home. I call up Mark saying, I'm not coming in today, man. I'm pain. We go to see the doctor. And the doctor gives you the shot. And then after he gives you the shot, it doesn't matter what he does to you after that. <laughs> that next day, I'm, I'm working on this message about suffering and affliction and pain. And the next day, I get, my Meniere's disease kicks in. I get a vertigo attack, coupled with the kidney stone thing. And then the next, the next day, I'm getting withdrawals from whatever medication I'm having. And I couldn't write. I could, literally could not write. And it was, everything looked so shaky. I says, man, I'm being bombarded by something over here. And I was starting to feel sorry for some of you people that have to deal with this every day of your lives. I'm thinking, I'm thinking to myself, all things work together for good. I was trying, where, is, where is the good in this stone and this dizziness in my head and this shaking of my hand? I mean, doesn't the Lord know I got I to gotta do a sermon? Abundant living with Jesus. Everything is just wonderful, isn't it? You go and you claim Romans 8, 28. And perhaps there are some or several of you sitting here today that are having some real difficulties in your life. Not just what I mentioned, but other things. And like so many other people, you turn to God's word for comfort. But it seems that the troubles and the trials of this life just continue to bombard your sense of being. It doesn't stop. When is the sifting going to stop? So today I want us to look at God's word so we can find the very comfort and peace that we may be, that you may be searching for. Our, our text is from Romans 8, 28 to 39. Before, before we begin looking at these verses, let me say that this passage, contrary to what we do, because I know how Baptists think, contrary to what we do, this passage is not, is not to be subdivided. Don't take Romans 8, 28 and forget the rest of it. 828 goes all the way through Romans 839. When Paul wrote this out, he didn't say, okay, verse 28. He didn't put a 28 down there and start writing. There were, there were no numbers. There were no paragraphs. And in fact, if it was written in Koine Greek, there was no spacing between letters or words. It was just one long continuous line of Greek letters. 
No punctuation marks, no nothing, just letter after letter after letter after letter. Letter after letter, and that's all it was. There's no verses in there. It is separated because we separated it. The original, there's no separation. It is one humongous thought. So don't take just a sentence out of it and say, well, this is in reference to me. The rest of it, theologically, I don't agree with it, so I'm going to get rid of it. You can't do that. So let's look at this. What that does is to cause us, when, when, we, divide, when we divide this passage, what I'm trying to say, when we divide this passage, what it does, it causes us to, to divide the events of our life into categories of good and bad and neutral. This is a good thing. This is a bad thing. This is eh, not good or bad. It's just a thing. So we, we divide our life into this is good, this is bad, and this is just neutral. It's indifferent. When you do that, you're missing the whole point of what Paul is trying to tell you. That God causes all things. There is a confluence of thought. A convergence of thought. That everything that happens, good, bad, or indifferent, everything that happens, all of it comes together. And God uses all of this. Just like in the cake. You use all the ingredients of the cake. They all come together and you bake it. You put it in the hot oven. You bake it for, you know, 500 degrees for four days or whatever. You bake it <laughs> until it's done. And God is saying in his word that all these things come together. They're sifted and beaten and mixed and stirred together. The good, the bad, and the indifferent, they all come together. They're, they're put in a crucible of time that we call life. And all this comes together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Not just a single event, but all of it. Let me ask you, what do you think you would get if, if you would only use what you believe to be the good tasting products in the making of the cake I talked about? Nobody wants to eat. Well, Debbie, maybe Brian does. Nobody wants to eat a cup of shortening. Does, does Brian walk up to you, Debbie, and say, you know, I can go for a big cup of lard. Nobody does that. Nobody thought brain. How about a spoonful of baking soda? How about just a skosh of cornstarch? Nobody does that. But yet, do we not use things like that in our baking? And somehow, in all of that process of this, that, and the other, that it comes out, Carla, and you hand Clarence at the end a beautiful cake. And he says, good, make another one. <laughs> See, not all these things, 
including the beating, the sifting, and the baking are necessary if we're going to have grandma's chocolate cake, aren't they? We need all of those. So verse 28 of our text is not to be looked at as some standalone verse that allows us to eliminate problems in our lives. God did not put us here so that he would eliminate problems in our lives. But listen, all together, all together, things, events, situations work together for good. All of those things come together for good. It is a good that ultimately will do our souls well. When we, in, we, we in this case, are, are then weaned away. And that's what God's wanting. He's wanting to wean us away from the, uh, from, from the world and its effects on our lives. And then through all things, and then through all things, we're brought nearer to God. God, God has a purpose in all of this. So all this stuff that happens to us, whatever, whatever it might be, whenever it might be, or from whomever it might be, all this stuff comes together and God says, you know what? I am doing something in you that ultimately when I get done with you, you're going to come out beautiful. So beautiful that the scripture says that he has predestined you to be transformed to the image of his son. That God's purpose for you is that when he gets done with you, that you're going to look like spiritually, you're going to look like Jesus. But you just can't have good things happen to you. There are bad things that happen in this world. There are bad things that happen to really nice people. It just, it just happens that way. So let's take a look at the last part of verse 28. He says, to those who are called according to his purpose. I would be in error not to discuss with you the theological implications and applications here. It is not the things in verse 28 that we're to focus on. Because what we do in life, we focus on things. We, we focus on events. Let me say that what is really important for us to focus on or look at is the activity of God, the involvement of God in our lives. That means we need to look at events that happen in our lives as how, how, is, how is this matched up or made it up with the calling of God? You see, God has called you into his kingdom. Now, he's called you into his kingdom, but now... He has to do something. Here you are seated in his kingdom. He's just not put you there so you can sit down on a park bench and wait for the bus to come pick you up for glory. He's put you into his kingdom, but he's got to match you up with events and things, whatever, and you're like good, bad, and indifferent, that in order that he's going to get you from this calling to get you transformed to what Jesus looks like. So that each one of you, as, as unique and particular as you are, that he has chosen for each one of our lives things that will happen in our lives that ultimately will get us to where God wants us to be so that when God gets us to where he wants us to be, then we will, he will prepare us for glory in heaven. He 
It is God who brings us into eternal fellowship with His Son. And, and in that eternal fellowship, there is eternal purpose in all things. In Ephesians 1.11, now Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, he, he writes, who works, he says, listen, who works all things, all things, not just some things in your life, but everything in your life, who works all things after the counsel of His will. That means that God has purpose for you that cannot be thwarted, a life that is patterned after you coming to be like Jesus. So when stuff hits you, yeah, there are bad things that happen. There's bad things that happen to nice people. But God can even use those bad things because in the confluence of time and activity and experiences... That all this comes together and all this seems to come together just like you're putting that grandma's chocolate cake together. All things come together and in the end, you come out beautiful. Listen, all things come together in your life to do something in your life that follows God's design to produce the mind God's going to produce the mind and the heart of His Son, Jesus, in you. So, I want you to look at what His purpose is in verse 28. Verse 28, and I say that you've got to link these with other verses. You just, you cannot take that by itself. It'll drive you nuts. If you say, all things work together for good, you say, well, what good is there in that, you know, this has happened to me? What good is there, God, when this has happened to me? If you take 828 by itself, you miss the boat. You know, God, God's got the Queen Mary out there for you, and, you're, and, you're, and you're, you, you run aground on the garbage scow. Don't just look at this verse. Look at all of them. Take 28, 28 and put it with 2930. There are two verses then that give us five specific affirmations which tell of God's purpose for every Christian. Now, please understand something here. I said God's purpose for every Christian. I did not say that every Christian has the same ingredients or events in their life. Not all of us are called to be chocolate cake people. Some of you are upside down cake people. There's nothing wrong with being upside down. Those are the fun people. Those are the people who get up on the tables and dance. The chocolate cake people just sit there and go, everybody loves me. We need upside down people. So, God's got you in there. There's a recipe for everybody. So, here are five affirmations that, that we can absolutely lay claim to that should bring to us great comfort. Now, I'm going to go through these five. And I know, you know, here's what we, because I understand Baptists. We look at these two verses and say, oh, no. I don't like those words. I know, I know yuns. I lived with yuns. But they're part of God's word. I don't put them in there. I'm just the messenger boy. 
but let's look at them. It says, look at 828. He says, those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what is that purpose? What is that purpose? Do we just make stuff up? No. The, the purpose is the five affirmations. He says, for those whom he foreknew. Right? That's the first one. The first affirmation. Those who he foreknew. And because I know you, you say, well, God knew what I was going to decide to do. Fooey. There's a Greek word for that. It's called baloney. <laughs> yes, God knows everything. Listen, God knows every thought you have. Absolutely. But if, if, if we're limiting God to the, to the extent of my life, then he's a small God. God is a whole lot bigger than, than the linear part of my life. When it says that God foreknew you, this does not mean that God knew what we would do concerning salvation, our salvation. That has nothing to do with it. It does mean that at the, at the foundation of this world, before the foundation of this world, before our time even started, that God knew us. It's like Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1.5. God says, Jeremiah, I knew you before what? You're even born. I knew you. I called you. You weren't even, you were not even thought of. Read Jeremiah 1.5. You were nowhere around, Jeremiah. Before the foundation of the world, you know what God did? Listen very carefully. I want to be as plain as I can be. God penned your name in his book of life. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us that. Revelation 3, 13, 8, Revelation 17, 8 says our names are written in the book of life. When? Before, before the foundation of the world. I don't have the mind of God in that thing. You know what? I just have to believe what God does. God does what God does. He's a whole lot bigger than me. I am not sovereign. And my will cannot thwart the will of God. But God can do what God's going to do. Not only did he foreknow us, not only does he just know us and that kind of knowledge that, that we know a person, not know what that person's thinking, but we know that person. The second affirmation is that says that God predestined us. Now, there's another word. <clears throat> How many people did he predestine? Everybody that he did what? Everybody that he foreknew? Those whom he foreknew? How many were predestined? All of those he foreknew. That's everybody who he had written in the book of life, he predestined. All he foreknew, he predestined. God's plan in saving us is to bring us to a place where we would be conformed to the image of his son. The ingredients, the baking, the beating, the sifting are all different, but the end result is the same. The predestined is that God says, I have determined that I'm going to transform each one of you into the image of my beloved son. Every person in this room that has put their trust into Jesus Christ, every one of yours, God says, I am going to transform that person into the image of my son. 
You are predestined to that. There is not a thing in this world that will thwart that. You belong to him and you belong to him eternally. Nothing thwarts that. Third, he called us. Let this, let's just get this clear. You did not seek Christ. He sought after you and brought you to himself through the message of the gospel. In theological terms, this is called effectual calling. The Bible says, Jesus says in John 6, 37. Now, Jesus didn't say, okay, here's John 6, 37. But Jesus said these words, and John put it in, in, in the Greek, and now we're going to read it in English. It says in John 6, 37, all... Listen, all that the Father gives me will do what? Will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Is that not good news to you? That God has, God has individually called you through the preaching of the Word of God, that you preach the Word of God, the message that Jesus Christ is God, who's come to this earth, who died on a cross, who was buried and has risen again on the third day, has ascended into glory, and He's coming back to take His church. Listen, when you preach the good news of Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God does the work in people's lives individually and uniquely. He calls out people individually and brings them to Himself. What we have to offer God is our sinful self. But that message must be preached. The message must be preached. It's God's plan of salvation. He calls us through the preaching of his word. The fourth thing, the fourth affirmation is that God justified us. God grants to us a faith that is necessary for us to be given salvation. Do you realize, folks... That you have no faith of your own to say, well, I think I'm just going to happen to believe in Jesus today. You know, I have people tell me, well, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait, and I'm going to do this later. How dare you, how dare you say that you're going to, you're going to tell God what time schedule that he's going to operate on? Ephesians 2.1 plainly says that we are dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. If you are spiritually dead, that means you have no spiritual unction or oomph at all to do anything that God's going to go, oh, wow. Look at, look at old Pat over there. You know what dead means? It means dead. You know what a dead person does? They lay there. You know what you do spiritually? Just lay there. You're not in a sea, a sea and saying, somebody throw me a life jacket. Because that person's not dead. But when he's talking about being dead, it's like being in a, in a spiritual sea and you're not doing this. You're belly down in the water. There's no air left in you. The only thing that's going to revive you is someone needs to come and regenerate you, put life back into you. They need to breathe. Listen, think of Genesis. They need to breathe into your nostrils a new breath of life. 
When that new breath of life is breathed into you, it's called regeneration. The Holy Spirit opens your heart up to understand and believe the gospel. Guess what you do? When you come to life, what's the first? If a man or a woman's been sitting in the water for, for 35 years, you think they'd be dead? Nobody swims that good. Let me tell you something. You're in all that time. You're, you're dead. All of a sudden, you come back to life because some supernatural power causes you to come back to life. And you see a life jacket sitting there. What are you going to do? You're going to grab it. The Word of God is your life jacket. You grab hold of the truth of the Word of God and say, I believe in Jesus Christ who's the Son of the living God. He died for my sins. He rose again. He justified me by His own resurrection. I am justified. I am raised with Him. As He ascended to glory, He's ascended me into glory with Him. I'm seated with Him at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. When He comes back, I'm coming back with Him. God justified. And the fifth thing is God one day is going to glorify us. A day is coming when we will, as believers, receive glorified, pain-free, tear-free, worry-free, anxious-free bodies. That, that makes Romans 8, 28 pop out. Because his purpose is being worked in my life. Not because I'm going to take a tragedy and make this good. You don't make a tragedy good. But God brings all things together. All the confluence of all the events. The convergence of all the events. And all the things. The good, the bad, and the ugly, and the indifferent. They all come together. And God says, wait till you see what I'm going to make out of you. Verse 31. Still part of Romans 8, 28. What shall we say then to these things? You see, he's still talking about the same stuff. If God is for us, then who's against us? God is resolved and engaged to bring us through all of our oppressors, afflictions, problems, illnesses, or etc. Whatever. So then, what should our response be to all these things? This verse does not mean that we are not to have any difficult times or troubles in our, in our, troubles in our life. If you think that believing in Jesus, that you're going to have this abundant, triumphant, victorious life, that you're going to go on this path that nothing bad's ever going to happen, listen, folks, you've deceived yourself. How do we know this? If you look at verses if you look at verses 35 and 36, do you see what Paul's writing over here? He talks about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. He talks about being put to death all day long, considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Let me tell you something. That is not what you think of when you think of a Christian person who has an abundant life as sheep to be slaughtered. When you say, well, listen, I want to become a Christian because I want to be a sheep led to the slaughter. Is that what you think? No. You say, I come to Jesus, everything's going to be great, I'm coming to Jesus. Well, folks, guess what? It's not. Jesus never said you're going to have a worry-free, struggle-free life. The idea here is that there is no adversary who is of any account when matched against the King of Glory. Whatever is going on in your life, whatever tragedy going on in your life, there, there is no adversary that is so great that God's plan for you is thwarted. 
God says, I'm taking you and I guarantee, I promise you that when I get done with you, you're going to be just like my son, Jesus Christ. Conform to his image. Verse 32, we know that God loves us. It says, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he and also with him give us, uh, give for you all things? We know that God loves us in that he did not spare his own son. In, listen, in his desire and sovereign will to bring us to salvation. God used his son to bring to us salvation. Because he has a, a sovereign will that is at work. In all this universe. And that sovereign will includes bringing us to salvation. Though Jesus was his own son, it pleased the Father. Listen, it pleased the Father to destroy his own son. You saw, preacher, you've gone too far. Where does it say in the scripture that God is pleased with putting his son to death? Well, I'll tell you where it's found in scripture. Isaiah 53.10. It says, but the Lord was pleased to what? To crush him, putting him to grief. The father was pleased because what? Because by giving us his son, he gets us and his son both. He gets both his son and you, the church. That's why it pleased him. In this verse, we see what Paul argues. Paul argues in this verse, in, in verse 32, he, he argues from the, from, the, from the greater. The greater is this, that God gave us his son. That's the greater. He argues from the greater to the less, and the less is what? If the father is willing to give us his son, then it should be noted that he would not be, he would not be willing to withhold anything from his church that would be profitable to us. God would not hold anything from you and I that would be profitable for us to what? To come to maturity in Jesus Christ. Jesus did not go to the cross with some reservation and doubting in his mind, fighting against it. He wasn't excited about it, but he says, I don't know if I want to do this. He says, I don't, I don't think, man, I just, Dick, I don't think you're worth that. Is that what Jesus is thinking? I don't think he was thinking that. Pat, I don't think you're worth it. That's not what Jesus was thinking. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you what, what Hebrews 12, 2 says. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy the joy set before him endured the cross. Let me tell you something. Jesus looked at the cross. Yes, he was anxious about it. Man, who wants to suffer like that? But he's looking beyond the cross. Jesus is looking beyond the cross. He says, man, he says, I'm filled with joy. Why am I filled with joy? Because not only will I be resurrected into glory, but millions and millions of people with me will be resurrected into glory. It says, he... For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he has sat down at the right hand of the God, uh, the right hand of the throne of God. And folks, someday you're going to be seated with him at the right hand of the throne of God. Now we come to verses 33 to 35. I don't know if you like English or not. I do like English. There, there are three pronouns that start each one of these verses. These are worth noting. 
The first one is found in verse 33. It says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? The pronoun who. Who? What, what event, what person, what, what adversary, what opponent is there who will bring a charge against God's elect? The second one, verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Match up against God. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. The third, the third pronoun. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. It all boils down to this. Who will bring any charge against God's chosen people? You are God's chosen people. You're His church. You're the household of faith. You're the bride of Christ. Who's going to bring a charge against them? You're God's people whom he has justified, those for whom Christ Jesus has died. It says, not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. So now we close with verses 38 and 39. None of the Christians... None of the Christians have problems or illnesses or plagues or pandemics or circumstances in this present life, nor the, or nor the life to come, that even have the remotest possibility of dissolving the love that Christ has for you. Nothing. Nothing. It cannot dissolve, diminish, demean, or demote the love that Christ has for you, His church. When it says that all things work together for good, he takes all, everything in your life, everything in your life, he brings it together. And even though you've been baked and beaten, battered and sifted, when God is done with you, he's got a work of art in his hands. Remember, it is God in 2 Timothy 1.9 who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. My, my, my last thought here, some anonymous writer wrote these words. They're, they're not mine. They belong to somebody else. But they're, they're very appropriate. Jesus Christ is no security against storms, but he is a perfect security in storms. He has never promised you an easy passage, only a safe landing. I hope you believe that. For we know, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, those who are called according to his purpose, and that purpose is this big. Look down the list. Look down the list. That purpose is huge.